So last week we started a brand new study. We're super excited about the study in the book of Daniel. And last week uh, we saw Daniel and his friends. We, we really talked a lot about this. Uh, they, they find themselves in a, a crazy world, an upside-down world. And this is why we've said the book of Daniel is the perfect book to study in this season, in this time, when things just seem so crazy and out of control, right? And I would even say it this way. If we were going to take a scale of between 1 and 10, and 10 being completely in control, and st- or 1 being completely in control and stable, and 10 just being out of control, the world we're living in today might be a 3 or a 4, and the world that Daniel was living in might be a 9 or a 10. So uh, as crazy and out of control as things seem to us, it was even worse in Daniel's day. And we, so last week in chapter 1, we kind of went through all the upheaval, all the uncertainty, all the challenges. And essentially, here's what we, we said last week. We said that Daniel and the finest of Israel, king, the king of Babylon comes, he surrounds Jerusalem, Uh, They topple the walls, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, they cart off the best and the brightest and take them back to Babylon. That's Daniel, that's his friends. They are the best and brightest that got carted off. So they watched this king uh, harm family members, destroy the city that they loved, destroy the temple that they loved, and now they found themselves in a foreign land and Everything, literally everything, was stripped from these young men, right? Now, uh, in the story, it seems pretty cut and dry. I mean, Daniel's a prisoner. He's a captive. He has to do what these people say, right? Well, it isn't quite so simple. Daniel actually had a choice. Because uh, what we don't see in this story, but what, what we know from the passage that Brian read, and these would have been the very words that Daniel was reading as well about how to conduct himself in Babylon. So we have to ask the question, how did Daniel know it was okay to serve the king of Babylon, this king who had come and conquered his country? How did he know that it was okay to do that? Well, the answer is he had a blueprint. And his blueprint was Jeremiah chapter 29. He had God's word. And in a moment, we're going to look at that blueprint together. But before we do, what you need to know about Daniel is this. Daniel never expected to end up in Babylon. Daniel never had plans to grow up in Babylon. Babylon, right? Life did not turn out the way that Daniel had planned. We said last week, back in Judah, his future would have been bright. But life does not always go the way that we plan. Anybody notice that? So maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I was supposed to be married by now, right? Or I was supposed to get a promotion by now, or I was supposed to have retired by now, or I was supposed to be on this financial track, or that financial track, or I was supposed to have had children, we've been trying and, and we can't, or we haven't, or you know, hey, I wasn't supposed to have to get up Monday morning and wear a face mask in public everywhere I go, right? Or, hey, yeah, I wasn't supposed to go bankrupt, I didn't plan on that, I wasn't supposed to lose my job, I didn't plan on that. 
I wasn't supposed to get divorced. I wasn't supposed to get cancer. That wasn't the plan. So what do you do when life doesn't turn out the way that you plan? Now today we're going to look at one of the great statements in all the Bible. This is a verse that more people have as a life verse. It's, it's often quoted. And they're wonderful, wonderful words, right? In fact, here's what it is. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. Here's what it says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, we're going to keep these uh, verses on the screen behind me as I just continue to share about them a little bit. Now, these are great words. They're beautiful words. But they come sandwiched between some not-so-great words. These are much harder words, much more difficult words than most people realize when they take them out of context. But for today's purposes, as we continue to look at the verse, I just want to acknowledge we all have plans. We all make plans. We all have plans. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do that. But God does not say in this verse, I know the plans that you have for you. He says, I know the plans that I have for you. And I further want to point out that in the Bible, God is always interrupting someone's plans. There's not a single story in the Bible that starts out with, hey, so-and-so had a really good plan. The Bible is all about God's plans, and let me just prove that. Adam didn't plan on being created. That happened to him, right? Noah didn't plan on building an ark. Abraham didn't plan on becoming the father of a new nation, especially in his 90s, right? Esther did not plan on having to stop a genocide. Moses did not plan on having to defy Pharaoh. Mary did not plan on getting pregnant. Daniel did not plan to live as a captive and a eunuch in Babylon. And if the word eunuch is unfamiliar to you, look it up. Because that's what Daniel had to endure. Not a single story in the Bible begins with, hey, so-and-so had a great plan. Because in life, it's not primarily about your plans or my plans. Life is about God's plans. And he doesn't know the plans that you have for you. He knows the plans that he has for you, right? Uh, so what I need you to know, in the first service I went through kind of a history of Israel. I'm going to lop, lop all that off and just kind of cut it to the basic and just say this. Exile. What Jeremiah 29 is talking about. In other words, the best and brightest of Israel, Israel gets destroyed, Jerusalem gets destroyed, the temple gets destroyed, and the best and brightest of Israel get carted off to Babylon where they'll live in captivity. This was by far the greatest crisis that the people of God in the Old Testament will ever have to face. It wasn't just that they lost homes or lost their city or lost the temple that they loved. Even though all of that was true, 
exile raised a very difficult question for God's people. And the question was this, does this God of Israel really exist? I mean, was the whole thing just a myth? Was it all a mistake? I mean, that's the great crisis. How can we proclaim there is a God and that he is strong and good and that he's our God when life hasn't turned out the way that we thought it would at all, when we're, when we're finding ourselves in a foreign country far from the land that God had promised to us? And here's why this is so important. I don't know where you grew up, if you grew up in church, but oftentimes when we do the little flannel graph thing with Daniel, and we, we kind of get this sanitized version. And I think it's so easy to read our Bibles and to just think that faith came easy for them, but they didn't live in a world like the world that we live in, right? And that they just kind of believed and it was easy and it just kind of all worked out. And this is one of the reasons that I love God's Word so much, because it is not a man-glorifying book. It is a God-glorifying book. The Bible records the unbelief, the doubts, the failures of its greatest saints. And what I would want you to know is men don't write a book like the Bible. Because if they wrote it, they would glorify the saints, right? They would talk all about their successes and gloss over their failures. And the Bible does not doing that. And the other thing we need to understand about Jeremiah chapter 29 is that he is saying something very bold that nobody wants to hear. Nobody wants to hear this. Tim Keller says that the, the exiles in Babylon have been thinking about two strategies. And coincidentally, these are the two strategies that churches try to sometimes choose to adopt as well. The first one, the one that Babylon wants, um, is for Israel to be assimilated into their culture. Because Babylon was gobbling up countries left and right, right? And countries tend to kind of resent that thing. So here was their strategy. They would say this. Hey, let's bring them to Babylon. Let them see our wealth. Let them see our homes. Let them see our splendor and our glory. Let them see how incredible our ways are. Let them take on our values, live our lifestyles, worship our gods, because if people can get assimilated to us, they won't be a problem anymore, right? They won't try to rebel. They will want to live here because they'll see all the things that we have and all the things that we've achieved, and they will want all of those things. Now, of course, you and I know, right, that if the people of God were to do that, they would lose their identity. I mean, they would lose their purpose. They would lose their uh foundational relationship with God it would be the easy way but they would lose their mission and themselves along the way now another strategy among the exiles was this and this is what the false prophets of Jeremiah 29 were speaking to another strategy was hey we'll just withdraw we'll pull back we'll isolate and we'll insulate ourselves from Babylon because hey we're not going to be here very long anyway God's gonna 
judge the city for doing this to God's people. We're going to be here one to three years tops. God's going to overthrow the city and we're done. So we don't have to get involved. And you need to know, Daniel would have been in the middle of this debate. Should I isolate? Should I insulate? Or is it okay to serve the king? This very same king who destroyed our city, who may have even killed many of these young men, men's fathers and mothers before their eyes. Is it okay for me to serve that king? And there was great, as you can imagine, right? There were lots of opinions about that. And Jeremiah speaks right into this. So here, let's kind of dig in. So this is Jeremiah's message. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Now let's just stop there because we would gloss over this. But I want you to notice when you read through the Bible, the titles given to God are so important. Now what would have been the first thing that a lot of people thought since, since the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed and they'd been taken away as captive? They would have thought, well, God's not in charge. God's not in control. He's not strong. If he was strong, he would have prevented this. If he was strong, he would have stepped in and stopped this. He's not strong, so how does God identify himself as the Lord Almighty? In other words, God's saying, look, I've lost none of my strength because you're in exile. I am still the Lord Almighty. And then he called himself the God of Israel. You know what he's saying? Even though Israel technically didn't even exist anymore, he's saying, I'm still the same God, and I remember the promise that I made to Israel. I'm still going to be faithful to Israel, even though you find yourselves captives in a foreign land. So this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now that's interesting. Who does everybody think carted off God's people, took them captive, and took them to Babylon? Well, they think Nebuchadnezzar did that, right? The king of Babylon. But God says, no, he didn't do it. He's working for me. I did that. I carried you from Jerusalem into exile. And so here is what I say. Build houses and settle down plant gardens and eat the produce, marry off your sons and your daughters. In other words, he's saying, you are going to be in exile a long, long time. In fact, he tells them, for this generation, he does that in a way of saying three score and ten, so he actually tells them, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. In other words, what he's saying is some of you, if you're an adult, you are going to live here and you are never leaving here. You are going to die here. I'm not going to judge Babylon right away. I'm not going to take over. I'm not going to take you back. You're going to grow up in a place you didn't plan on being. You're going to grow up in a society you didn't plan on having to grow up in. But I want you to be part of that society. I want you to buy houses. I want you to get married. I want you to grow gardens, right? Um, he says, for this generation who is hearing this message, you're never going to return. You're going to live and you're going to grow old and you're going to die in Babylon. So I want you to be part of the world there. I want you to be part of Babylon. Build, plant, and marry. And there's a reason that God chose these three things to talk about. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, it says that when you build a house, 
You were to bless it. That's an act of worship to God, right? When you plant a garden or a vineyard, you're to offer the first fruits of that as an act of worship to God. When there is a marriage, the couple is blessed as they enter into a covenantal worship relationship in the eyes of God. These were all three fundamental ways that God's people worship. Do you know what God is saying to them? He's saying, you can worship, you can still worship me, even though you live in Babylon. You can still worship me. I'm still here, I'm still there. And you don't have to separate or insulate yourselves in order to do that. And what we see in the book of Daniel is that the God of Israel is also the God of Babylon. Nobody knew that. They didn't know it yet. And see, here's the thing. Babylon's plan was to assimilate the Israelites, the Old Testament people of God, into their kingdom, right? It just kind of seduced them with how beautiful the city was and how many opportunities there were there, right? But God's plan is to assimilate Babylon into his kingdom. And that's a whole different deal. And God is saying to these exiles, listen, I want you to live in Babylon with me because when you're with someone you love, you don't get so homesick. And I'm going to be with you here. I know you miss Jerusalem, but I'm here. And I'm the most important thing. So, Uh, God is just kind of saying, look, you know, I want you to work, engage in your culture. Now, so Jeremiah just said something very unpopular, right? He told him, you're going to be here for 70 years. You're going to be here a long time. The prophets who are saying God's going to destroy it and you're going to be back home in no time, they are lying to you. They're lying to you. Uh, So so he's already saying a very unpopular message, but it gets worse. Look what he says to them. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. Now imagine there's a crowd of people gathered around, and Jeremiah unrolls the scroll, and he reads those words. Imagine how they would feel. Wait a minute. You want the city that carried me and my family off into exile, that destroyed our homeland? You want me to help this city prosper? I mean, wait, you're saying you want me to actually pray for the people who carted us off and are making us live here against our will? You're saying, God, you want good things for those people? And that's exactly what what he was saying, right? Um, Jeremiah says, I want you to pray to God for the people that ruined your lives, that tried to steal away your legacy and your, your heritage. I want you to devote your time, your talents, and your treasures to bringing peace to the very people that brought war on you. I want you to bring prosperity to the very city that brought devastation to the city that you love. Now this was a radical new way for the old covenant people of God to be present in a culture. They never dreamed that this would be the way that God would make them a blessing to the world. 
never dreamed of. This wasn't even on their radar, right? And fundamentally and coincidentally, this is exactly the kind of people that God calls us to be as new covenant followers of Jesus. Uh, so important to get this. God says to all of his people, he said uh, to, to those believers then, and he says to us now, I don't want you to assimilate to the culture where you find yourself. I mean, there's idolatry there, there are values there that would seduce you away from me in the same way that King Nebuchadnezzar would try to seduce you away from life in Israel. Right? I don't want you to live like they live. I want you to walk with me. I want you to live close to me. I want you to drink water from my well. I want you to uh, you know, uh, stay close to me. I want you to be salt and light in a culture that is falling apart. And Jeremiah uses an amazing word. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city because when the city prospers you will prosper now it's super important to understand the word here that jeremiah is using it's the hebrew word shalom some of you are used to thinking of shalom as a greeting but shalom is a very very big very very important word in the bible shalom means universal flourishing it means wholeness it means utter and complete healing and delight right chuck colson says this definition for shalom he says that's man who is at peace with god peace with his fellow human beings and at peace with creation so that's what jeremiah is asking for for the city of babylon just peace a city where there's peace between men and God, peace with one another, and peace with creation. So here's what God is saying to Jeremiah and, and, and all of his friends. He's saying, I want you to engage in work, in business, in culture, in the arts, in education, in the way that you care for the poor, in technology, in how you live with your neighbor, and how you handle your time, your talents, and your treasures. I want you to do everything you do for the betterment of the city that you are living in, even if that city is responsible for so much hurt and pain and destruction in your life. And what God wanted what God wanted to happen in Babylon is he wanted the people of Babylon to look at these Israelites that they had brought to their city and say, hey, you know, I don't believe what those crazy Israelites believe. I mean, can you believe it? They believe in one God. I mean, they don't believe in Zeus and Poseidon and all the other gods. They only believe in one. Can you believe that? We don't believe what they believe, but I'll tell you this. We can see that our city is a better place to live because all these Israelites are here. We can see that, God, that their God is blessing our city by putting them in it. See? That was what Shalom was. And God says, right, he says, that's how I want you to be present in your Babylon, in your city, the city of Shelbyville, right? See, here's the thing. Most people, why do people go to a city? Why do people move anywhere? They move to a city to take from it, right? They move from a city to amass from that city and take 
unto themselves. That's why almost everyone comes to a city, right? We come to take something from it. People go to Hollywood because they want to get famous, right? People go to Silicon Valley because they want to get rich. And there are some people that think that the only reason people would end up in Shelbyville is because they got bad directions. And nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. God says, I want a people to live in Shelbyville, Indiana, who will invest in that city, who will make that city a better place to live, the kind, that would be the kind of people and the kind of church that when people look at that church, they will say, you know, I don't believe what those people do. But you know what? I can see very clearly that our city, the city of Shelbyville, is a better place to live because they are in it. And i got to tell you, just being honest, for the first 10 years or so that I lived here, I've lived here 25 years now. I've raised all my children here. Um, This is my home. I love this city. I love, love, love this city. I can't imagine wanting to be anywhere else. And for about the first 10 years that I was here, I would hear people, you know, they would kind of diss on it. Like, oh, well, you know, this is life in Shelbyville, living the dream. You know, this is a terrible place to live. I'm going to get out of here on the first train that I can take to get out of here. Why? Because they wanted a city that they could go to and take from. That's what we all want, right? And I got to tell you, I don't hear it as often as I used to. I, I, in the last seven or eight years, I don't hear that kind of sentiment as much as I used to. But here's what I want you to know. That sentiment is deadly to your spiritual life. You know why? Because God brought you here. In the same way He brought those folks from Jerusalem to Babylon, He has brought you and I here. And when you complain about where God has put you, you're complaining about God. Right? Now, uh, we're going to look at a statement Jesus made and tie all this together. This is Jesus now talking to this community, the church, you and me. And here's what He said, Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, I want to talk about salt for a moment. We think of salt primarily as a flavor, right? When we think salt, we think of seasoning. But in the ancient world, in the world of Jesus, in the world of Daniel, that was not salt at all. Salt was primarily thought of and almost exclusively thought of as a preservative. Now, we got to understand this. As a preservative, what does a preservative do? As a preservative, you put salt in things that go bad. You put salt in things that fall apart. You put salt in things that would rot or decay without it. In other words, you wouldn't put salt in a potato as a preservative, right? We might put salt as a, on a potato as a preservative or as a flavoring, but not as a preservative because you don't need to do that. Potatoes don't go bad super easy. It will stay fresh on its own. So what does this mean? Listen to me. Look at me. This means that as Christians, we must go to places that are rotting and decaying and falling apart. Because that's what 
Saul does. And this leads to a question. Where should Christians choose to live? Where should Christians choose to live? Because primarily in America, American Christians want to, to live in the same kinds of cities that everyone else wants to live in. They want to live and go to places that aren't falling apart. They want schools that are fine and streets that are safe and plenty of amenities, plenty of places to shop or eat. And I just have a question about that. What if Jesus had chosen to move into the most wholesome and luxurious neighborhood? What if Jesus had chosen to chase the American dream? Where would that leave you and where would that leave me? He didn't do that. Jesus chose to be raised in a little city, a little nowhere south of the border hick town called Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. And in fact, we know this because when one of his disciples was being recruited, Nathaniel, Nathaniel asked a question. Some of you remember the question. Jesus came from Nazareth? I mean, does anything ever come good come from Nazareth? And it wasn't just that Nathaniel was prejudiced against Nazareth. That was the word on the street. That's just what everybody thought. Nathaniel was just saying what everybody else in the room already believed. And that's where Jesus chose to grow up. In the first service, I said he chose to be born there and got some chuckles because you, if you know the Christmas story, you know he was actually born in Bethlehem right but he did choose to be raised in nazareth and you know and think about this, this is jesus right he could have come big he could have chosen to have been born at a halftime show during the super bowl if he wanted to but he didn't he goes to a nowhere out of the way little hick town and that's where he grows up a town that had no or little respect around the whole country and that's where jesus chooses to grow up and then do you know what jesus did he moved into you and he moved into me and he, he moved into my neighborhood and he moved into your neighborhood into houses that weren't all clean and tidy but messy filled with people who struggle and hurt and jesus moved into that this is why we say that our vision and this is so important. When we talk about our vision, what we're saying is, look, in the next three to five years, these are our marching orders. These are who God's calling us to be. And here's what it is. Our vision is to be a disciple-making church that brings hope and healing to this community, the community where God has called us to live. There's a show on TV. I absolutely love this show. Maybe some of you have seen it. How many of you have ever seen the show? It's kind of another take on the whole home reno thing, but it's a, a show called hometown anybody an addict of hometown i am an addict of hometown and i tell you one of the reasons i love it because the couple that's doing it lives in a little town by the name of laurel mississippi and it's a little community of about eighteen thousand. does that ring a bell to anybody sounds a lot like shelbyville indiana doesn't it and this couple is committed to renovating homes one house at a time until their whole city is a better and a different place to live. And it just so happens that the couple that's on this, they happen to be followers of Christ. 
And, uh, and so they're taking their faith and they're using that to rehab their entire city one house at a time, right? Now listen, I want to be, be careful and I want to be measured in what I'm about to say. Salt only works, listen, this is so important to understand the words of Jesus, salt only works as a preservative in proximity, when it's close, when it's, this is why when there was meat and they needed to preserve it, they would work that salt into it. That's the only way it worked. And if it wasn't in the meat and part up next to what was rotting and decaying, if it wasn't right up next to what was falling apart, salt would lose, there was no purpose for it, right? The only purpose they knew was salt as a preservative. This is why Jesus says, you know what, if it's not acting as a preservative, the only thing it's good for is to be thrown on the street and walked on by people. It's not serving its purpose anymore. It's not doing the thing for which everybody around the world recognizes that it needs to do. I mean, I mean, imagine salt as a preservative in a world without refrigeration. I mean, it was a game changer. I mean, it meant people wouldn't go hungry. It meant famines could be put off, right? Now, if it's true that salt only works in proximity, and we're the salt of the earth, that means God has put us in Shelbyville, Indiana, to get up next to things and people that are falling apart. The pieces and parts of our city where there is rot and decay otherwise as a church we're not being good for anything except to just throw out in the street and be walked on by people we're not serving the purpose that God has given us as a local church God has put you and I in Shelbyville Indiana to love our city to pray for our city and to do everything we can with our time our talents and our treasures to make this city a better place to live everything and so listen if somebody comes to me these days and just wants to complain about the city I you know what I always say to them hey well let's roll up our sleeves and let's change that let's work on that because we have the privilege we have the privilege of being God's people in this place at this time in this season for this purpose and it is our purpose and if we're not serving that purpose again we're only good to be scattered out in the street and be walked underfoot can you see that now here's where I want to be careful if salt only works in proximity, do you know what that means? That means we can't insulate or isolate ourselves from hurt, rot, decay, and need. I'll tell you something I noticed just about myself. So social, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, like, like social bandwidth. Um, is a lot like our bodies. So if I, if I exercise a muscle, that muscle's going to get larger. And likewise, if I ignore a muscle, that muscle is going to atrophy and it's going to get smaller. And something I noticed about myself is during this global pandemic, when everybody's pulled back, 
Rightly so. I'm not criticizing that response. I want to be clear. As everybody's pulled back and as we're insulating and isolating from one another, right? I noticed something. As I was being less social, my bandwidth for being social started to go down because I wasn't exercising that muscle, right? So, and it got, it was even worse for me because we had the pandemic and right about the things, the time things started opening up, I go off on sabbatical. So I extend that by another four or five weeks of not being social, right? And then I noticed that when I would get in a crowd of people, like, you know, it was like, whoa, this is, I, I'm, I'm like anxious, this is hard. I mean, why? It wasn't because I was afraid of getting the coronavirus, I had not been exercising that muscle for a long time. And so all of a sudden, being in a crowd and in a group of people was just overwhelming for me, right? And, and we should expect this. And so here's what I'm saying. Even though, rightly so, we've had to isolate and insulate as Christians, we can't stay that way. We have to figure this out. And I'm not saying we rush in there recklessly and just say, hey, we'll just disregard everything. Certainly we want to be careful. If we have to wear a mask, let's wear masks. If we have to social distance, let's social distance. But those aren't excuses not to get up close and meet needs. Those aren't excuses not to be involved with needy people, people whose lives are literally falling apart. And so we have to figure out how we can do that in a way that's honoring, you know, to everyone, but still honoring to God. But otherwise, otherwise, we will be good for nothing as a church except to just be thrown out on the street and walked on by people. Listen, if we're just going to be a, a church, see what I'm saying. I'm going to say this pretty strongly. If we're just a church that's content to hold services on Sunday morning and nothing more, we're not doing this city any good. We're doing it a little teeny tiny bit of good. And God is saying, well, look, that's just the first 10%. Where's the other 90%? Why aren't people getting up close in proximity to the things in this town that are rotting and decaying and falling apart? That's our purpose. Folks, this is about destiny. This is about calling. And you know what? Not even a global pandemic should ever interrupt calling. Ever. Not ever, ever. All right, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to call up our team. And we're going to respond together in worship. And Brandon is going to speak a word to you about this song that is so important in relation to what I've just said to you. Because listen, it would be easy to think that I've, I, you know, I've been talking and, and we're just going to go out there and run out there and haphazardly meet needs. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a coordinated effort that's wise, right, that's thought through, that we can do together. And for the rest of 2020, we're going uh, to be going all in on that deal and talking at length about this. But this is our calling, but we don't do that by ourselves, do we, brother? I mean, you made that very, very clear, you know, in the first service. So what I'm going to ask you to do 
is just be aware of the words. Be engaged with the words that you're singing. If you're in your living room and you want prayer, uh, you know, you want to click the, the chat bar there and, uh, you know, submit a prayer request. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do if you're online in your living room. And by the way, let me speak to those of you in your living room. Nothing I have said today was designed to make you feel guilty or less than because you're sitting in your living room. We have to figure this out together, right? All of us do. And we figure this out in you know, different ways and at different paces, and there's all the grace in the world for that. I'm just saying to you, if in two years you're still watching church in your living room, we need to have another heart-to-heart talk. Right? That's all I'm saying. So I'm not trying to call you out or make you feel less than. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is a problem we all have to figure out, those of us in the room and those of us in a certain room of our home. Amen? All right. So, uh, but I want to call you to respond. You know, maybe you need to respond with your treasures. If you're here in the room, you can bring those to the front or the back if you're online. You can click a link uh, to give as well. Almost anything that you can do here, you can do online. Maybe you want prayer here. We'd love to be available to pray for you, with you. Uh, you know, when the service ends, we have a prayer room here. Uh, our folks can be, you know, at the foot. Um, just try to keep a safe, you know, distance. Um, we want to still keep people safe. So I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to sing together, okay? And I'll ask you to, let's, why don't you go ahead and stand now, even as we pray. Papa, uh, God, you've said that we're salt. And God, that means we have to be up close and personal with things that are rotting and decaying and falling apart, and that we can't just perpetually isolate and insulate ourselves from that you've called us to make our city a better place to live Lord Jesus would you help us would you be with us in the same way that you promised to be with Daniel and uh, those uh, his friends in captivity we ask and pray in the mighty name of Jesus amen